All right, well, we begin a new series of classes this morning on the spiritual disciplines. And so over the next 13 weeks, we'll be looking at the practice of a number of spiritual disciplines, uh, such as Bible intake and prayer and um, confession of sin. And uh, we'll talk about what that means when we get there. It's like, ooh, confession of sin. Let's start a new confession booth or something. Evangelism, serving, stewardship, and so on. And, and so what we're trying to do is take our understanding of our responsibility to pursue holiness with all that we have and practically work it out in our daily lives. What is that going to look like? How, how can we cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? So uh, let, let me begin with the word of prayer and ask for God's help as we do this, and then we'll, we'll begin this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace and providing for us your word. Thank, we're thankful that you did not leave us without a witness, but you gave us clear instruction as to what we are supposed to do and how we are to live. And we're thankful that we have faithful men and women in this church who help encourage us to do that in the right way and to point out for us sin uh, when necessary and who pray for us. And I pray that, that you would make our church more united around our responsibility to become holy individually and as a body of believers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we want to think about the broader perspective of biblical spirituality. And then second, we want to place the spiritual disciplines within the context of our understanding of progressive holiness or progressive sanctification. So, what is biblical spirituality and how do we put that in the context of progressive sanctification? Have you ever heard someone say that they are spiritual, but that they aren't religious? Now, I'm a, I'm a spiritual person, but I don't go to church or anything. I don't read the Bible. Um, not not really a religious person. Uh, what they mean is they don't place themselves under the authority of something from where their spirituality derives. So what do they mean by spirituality then? Is it something that each person can just make up? They can just put a label of spiritual on something and it makes it more official? Uh, much of what we are going to look at this series comes from a book by Don Whitney. It's on the back of your handout. It's called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Um, and um, so much of it is going to be drawn from this. The next quotation that I want to point your attention to with regard to spirituality comes from him, but it doesn't come from this book. It comes from one of the articles that he had written. And uh, he says this, There is an unprecedented interest in spirituality in the culture as a whole. A number of books on spirituality have been at the top of the bestseller list in the last decade. The rise of curiosity about angels and near-death experiences, psychics, etc., is further evidence. I, he, he says, I read a survey where even a majority of atheists consider themselves to be spiritual people. Isn't that interesting? That even people who deny the existence of God call themselves spiritual people. In, in uh, the recent past, the notion of spirituality has become a very plastic idea. People describe themselves as spiritual if they have some unexplainable feeling. 
Even within the, the broadly Christian tradition, some are advocating versions of spirituality that have been influenced by mysticism and the New Age movement. <clears throat> D.A. Carson wisely cautions, not all spirituality is spiritual. And so we must let Scripture determine what spirituality is. Otherwise, the pursuit of spirituality can can move into nothing more than a pursuit of certain kinds of experiences and the disciplines of the Christian life, spiritual disciplines that we're going to look at, can become just techniques that enable us to get to this experience. And so what we want to think about is, is what is biblical spirituality? And we need to ask two questions with regard to that. What is biblical spirituality? First, we want to answer the question, what does it mean to be spiritual? And then second, since there's a wide range of people and ideas claiming that this word spiritual, should we use the word? And to answer that question, the answer is yes, we should use the word. Uh, we, we should use it because we, of all people, own this word um, because of what the scriptures talk about, the spiritual life. Um, Michael Haken has described, uh, has, has, has said it this way, the word spirituality reminds us of something basic about the Christian life. The word spirituality comes from the Latin uh, spirituali- spiritualitas or something like that, which in turn is derived from the word spiritus. And he goes on to describe that, that it was first used uh, in, in, uh, the, in the Latin in the 5th century to urge someone to live according to the Holy Spirit. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? That spiritual comes from our responsibility to, to live according to the Holy Spirit. True spirituality is intimately bound up with the Holy Spirit and, and His work. And so as Christians, to be spiritual is central to what it means to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, when other people talk about spirituality, that I'm spiritual but not religious, they're not talking about the Holy Spirit, are they? But when we talk about this being spiritual, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so the term biblical spirituality is... Um, the term biblical spirituality has two senses. One, it refers to spirituality that is biblical. That is, that the Bible determines what it is and it shapes the structure of what spirituality is. And then two, it refers to... Uh, something that is driven by biblical content, that the resource of our spirituality is the Bible. Okay, so let's think about this for the first part of the class. What does the Bible say about spirituality? What does the Bible say? Number one, it's centered upon knowing the triune God. It's centered upon knowing the triune God. This is the opposite of self-centered spirituality that is so prevalent in our culture and that tends to be the main topic of these top-selling books. Our understanding of biblical spirituality means that, that we must know the triune God. It's focused on knowing God as He has revealed Himself in His Word. So would someone read 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen. 2 Corinthians 13:14 when you find that go ahead and read it 
because what we find is that our relationship with God involves our relationship with the triune God, with the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. All right, I think that's the last verse in Paul's letter to the Corinthians there, right? So Paul says, listen, the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit be with you all. This kind of captures the idea of the doctrine of salvation, that God's loving determination to save His people involves the Lord Jesus Christ's death and re- resurrection, and it comes to us, it's appropriated to us through the Holy Spirit. And... um so we must understand and know the triune God. That's spirituality. Secondly, what we know about spirituality from the Scripture is that it consists of knowing ourselves in light of Scripture. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. It consists of knowing ourselves in light of Scripture. We can only know ourselves when we come to know God properly. We don't know ourselves well or properly apart from knowing God. John Calvin says it this way in his uh, Institutes of the Christian Life. He says, It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then comes from there to contemplate, contemplate and scrutinize himself. We can't know ourselves apart from knowing God. Um, because before God's majesty, we are humbled to our sinful condition and on our, our unworthiness. And without that revelation that God helps us to know Him, we can't know ourselves. And here's a great uh, description of man's encounter with God's holiness here in chapter 6. Would someone read verses 1 through 5? So, to call God holy is to speak about His His distinction from His creation. That's part of what it means to be holy. It also refers to His moral purity, but it all, but but at its very essence is His, his apartness. That He's not like us in many senses. That He is transcendent, and that's why when Isaiah sees God's glory there at the throne and the angels bowing down and worshiping. Isaiah's response is, woe is me. See, he can't contemplate himself apart from first contemplating God, seeing God for who he is. Then he starts to recognize who he is, who who Isaiah himself is. It's only on the basis of a proper view of God that we can have a proper understanding of ourselves. So we can't understand spirituality properly. We can't understand ourselves properly without God first revealing Himself to us. 
Mark Dever describes this aspect of how Scripture uh, works as pouring paint or throwing paint on, on the invisible man. It's as if we are the invisible man. We can't see ourselves properly until we have the paint of God's revelation poured on us. And then we start to see who we really are. It starts to shed light on, on us and reveals what before was invisible to us, what we were blinded to. We thought we were something else until we saw God. And uh, isn't that what happened to you? I mean, obviously it didn't happen the way that it happened to Isaiah, but, but didn't you see God and then start to see life differently when you came to Christ? I mean, don't you see things differently than your unbelieving neighbor or family member does? And uh, so we can't understand ourselves properly until we understand God or until God has revealed Himself to us. Number three, it's Christ-centered. The Bible, the Bible's uh, what the Bible has to say about spirituality. So turn to Ephesians chapter one. Spirituality is Christ-centered. It's about Christ. When we see ourselves in light of God's holiness then we realize our need for a Savior. The Bible talks about um, that, uh, the fact that, that Christ came to save sinners. Consider this passage here, verses 3-14, through 14, where all three of the persons of the Godhead, remember spirituality is about the triune God, um, all three members of the Godhead are mentioned in this passage, but there's a particular focus on one of those members. See if you can see who it is. Verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him, Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of of his glory. This passage is about the Godhead, but there's a singular focus or a primary focus on Christ. The Gospels reveal who Christ is and what he came to be. Jesus is declared in the New Testament to be the fountain of all knowledge and wisdom, Colossians 2 3. He is the one who sustains every particle of the universe that holds all things together, Colossians 1 16 and 17. He set forth as he has set forth as the supreme reason for living, 2 Corinthians 5.9. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of who God is, 
Hebrews 1.3. The name of Jesus is said to be supreme and that there is no other name under uh, by whom uh, other than um, by that name by which sinners can be saved, Acts, Acts 4.12. And He is uh, at the center of what our praise will be about for all of eternity. That Christ is the only one who is worthy to open the scrolls to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, Revelation 5.12, and people for all ages will be praising Christ for His sacrifice. Christ is at the center of what God is doing. And so spirituality in the Bible is Christ-centered. Number four, and then I'll see if you have any questions or comments, it is gospel-centered. How can we approach a perfectly holy God if if um, if we are still in our sins, then how can we approach a perfectly holy God? Because the presence of God, if we are in our sins, will terrify us rather than invite us. But Isaiah, you remember what happened to him when he recognized his condition, his sinful condition? Do you remember what the you remember what the what, what God basically allowed to happen? He had the angel t- take the the uh, the coal and put it on his tongue, and and cleanse him. I don't think that was a salvation experience there, but the point I think I think we can draw an inference from that that it's first God who has to do a work in us that He has to be the one who brings about cl- cleanness, cleanliness to us before we can can say what Isaiah says later. Here am I, send me, right? And um, so it, the, the spirituality in the Scriptures is gospel-centered. We are still in our sins. We were alienated from God. We were enemies of God. And yet, uh, if we trust in Christ, who bore God's wrath in our place, and who rose from the dead, then we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. But without Christ, we can't draw near to God, can we? Apart from Christ, we cannot come to God. We can say that we can approach God um, only because He has first drawn near or approached us in Christ. And so what does this mean for biblical spirituality? First, access to God in prayer, worship, and fellowship is not something that we should take lightly or for granted. Access to God is the greatest of human privileges one that has been purchased at an indescribable cost, the death of our Lord Jesus. So access to God should not be taken for granted. Secondly, there's no other way to know God spiritually and to worship Him but through Christ and Him crucified. We can't know God apart from Christ. Alright, so it is founded in the triune God. It's the spirituality in the Scripture is centered on the knowing of the triune God. It consists of knowing ourselves in light of Scripture after having uh, God, after God having revealed Himself to us. It's Christ-centered. And then number four, it's Gospel-centered. A couple more here, but before that, do you have any questions? Comments? Alright, number five, it's a spirituality of the Word. Spirituality of the Word. Turn to Second Peter 1. 
is especially important that we emphasize this point because we live in an age where it is commonly assumed that spirituality functions at deeper level at a deeper level than words that it functions at a feeling sort of level and so we're always going after dreams and sacred objects and uh, places and visions and special experiences and miracles and feelings but the bible attests to its own divine authorship and its authority and its and its sufficiency it comes through the word spirituality comes through the word it's not some feeling that we're chasing look at second peter 1 verses 20 and 21 someone read that for us Okay, so how exactly was the the scripture? Uh, how is it authoritative for us? It's because God actually spoke His word to us through men, whom He moved along to inscripturate what He had to say. And uh, we have that same idea in Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So as Christians, we should be people of the book, not of the feeling. Primarily, Now, we shouldn't divorce feelings from truth. Uh, God has made us to be feeling people, emotional people, people with emotions. And so we shouldn't just dismiss all that. But um, we should ultimately be about the book, the Word of God. Number six, it is a corporate spirituality lived out in loving fellowship with other believers. When we think of spirituality, we primarily think of a personal matter. I personally need to be spiritual. Sometimes we even think of it as a private matter. Um, but we are fundamentally members of communities. We're, we're fundamentally members of a, of a body of Christ, part of the people of God. And we're affected more than we realize by the communities in which we live, to which we belong. And so this class is all about personal spiritual disciplines, but we have to be careful not to neglect the corporate aspect of the Christian life. That um, the personal spiritual disciplines that we pursue affect how we think about it as a whole, as a church. And um, so while we should pursue spiritual disciplines personally, we should not dismiss our responsibility and the necessity of us to be a part of of uh, the spiritual disciplines within the church as a whole. These sorts of components ought to complement one another, that because we're coming together as a body and pursuing spiritual disciplines as a body, it should enhance our personal spiritual disciplines and personal spiritual life, but at the same time our personal spiritual life should enhance our corporate spiritual life. Many of the spiritual disciplines that we talk about cannot happen on an island. They happen within the context of a group of believers. And particularly in this age, we're talking about the local church. Um, Spirituality that is personal and not corporate is sure to be unfruitful because maturity is fundamentally corporate in the New Testament. Now, that doesn't remove responsibility from each of us as individuals to to go after the spiritual disciplines and discipline ourselves, but but it is corporate. And I, we don't have time to turn to Ephesians 4:11 through 16, but I would 
recommend you take a look at that passage again and remind yourself about the responsibility that we have corporately towards the spiritual disciplines. So to summarize, this understanding of biblical spirituality has tremendous significance for how we think about personal spiritual disciplines. Our practice of spiritual disciplines must be God-centered, Christ-centered, and Gospel-centered. The Bible is at the foundation of our spirituality. Bible intake is not just one of the many spiritual disciplines, but it is the primary resource that fuels our practice of the other ones. And that's why we're going to look at that one first, beginning next week. We don't practice the spiritual disciplines to earn God's favor. Okay, A biblical understanding of ourselves as guilty and helpless puts to death any notion of our ability to approach God with our abilities. Finally, we do not practice the spiritual disciplines in isolation. Rather, we grow in maturity as members of a local church. All right. So that's what the Bible has to say about spirituality. Now let's think about um, how these spiritual disciplines relate to our sanctification. How these spiritual disciplines relate to our sanctification. Let's first examine what the Bible teaches about sanctification, and then we'll see how, how spirituality relates to it. The word sanctify is a word that has as its root the word holy. So it's it would be a word that we could make up, holify or something like that. Sanctify, that's the idea. It's to be, to, to be made holy, to grow in holiness. And the scriptures teach or talk about sanctification in three various ways, three different ways. First, the scripture talks about sanctification uh, as something that was initial, it is definitive. It, it happened at conversion. It's final in that sense, and that, that it's done. We see this in passages that imply um, that believers have been once and for all sanctified. It's a definitive break from the ruling power of the world. It is God setting us apart from the world, no longer to go back to that world. It's a reorientation of our desires so that we no longer have a dominant love for sin, that no longer sin is our master, but now Christ is our master. We've, we've removed ourselves, or God's removed us from that life. And so this is why all Christians, not just elite, some elite group of believers, are commonly described in the New Testament as saints. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, and I'll show you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul tells the Corinthians that they have been sanctified by virtue of their conversion. That this is already done. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ, saints by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. If you are in Christ, then you belong to the realm of sanctified people, of holy people. It's something that has already taken place. And I think that's the same idea in chapter 6, verse 11, where it says, such were some of you. You know, all these fornicators, idolaters, all these 
uh, drunkards and so on who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11 of chapter 6 says, Such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified. But you were justified. So these three ideas, washed, sanctified, and justified, are all past tense and happen at the point of our conversion. It's an initial sanctification. It's initial an initial setting apart of ourselves for the purpose of godliness, for the purpose of holiness. But that's not the only way the Scripture talks about sanctification. This is the way we probably think about it the most. It is a process that goes throughout our life. We, sanctification progresses throughout life. It's a process. The, the Scriptures are full of of uh, descriptions and and instructions for believers on how they should be sanctified. You need to sanctify yourself. You need to grow in godliness. Those of us who have been liberated from the slavery to sin and have become slaves of righteousness live holy lives. We pursue holiness. We are to grow more and more in sanctification just as we previously grew more and more in sin. Turn to 2 Corinthians 3. And here's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And this talks about our, our progressive sanctification. But we all, with unveiled face, verse 18... Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. There is a sense in which we are sanctified at conversion, that we're set apart for the purpose of godliness. God has done that. But there's another sense which we see here where we are being transformed. We're not where we used to be. We're not where we once will be. We'll talk about what that's going to be like. But we're we're moving to one level of glory to the next. We're, we're looking at the mirror of God's Word, and as we do that, the Spirit is transforming us. He's changing us from one level of glory to the next. And so we call that progressive sanctification. The author of Hebrew uh, tells his readers to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us and run the race with endurance or patience. And Hebrews 12:14 says that we need to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's not talking about getting saved. That's talking about after we are saved, we need to strive for more and more holiness, growing in our godliness. Then the third aspect of sanctification, the third way that sanctification is talked about in the New Testament, one, initial sanctification or definitive. It's happened, it's done. Two, progressive. Think of it like a set of stairs or some sort of incline. Progressive. We're growing in sanctification, becoming more and more holy. The final one is uh, also known as final sanctification. Or we could call it glorification. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3. This is what theologians call final sanctification or glorification. That is that as we go through this life, our sanctification will never be completed. Don't ever think that you will get to a plane, some sort of plateau in your life where you're done. You've done as much sanctifying as you could in your life. That doesn't happen in this lifetime because sin still 
abounds within us. Thankfully, not as much as when we came to Christ. But we will never get to a place where we are fully sanctified in this lifetime. That happens in the next life. Someone read 1 John 3, 2. All right, do you see that? That third aspect or the third way in which sanctification is talked about? It's talked about in terms of glorification, that we will see Christ as He is and we will become like Him. See, that's what sanctification is all about. It's about Christ's likeness. It's about godliness. God sets us apart for the purpose of being like Christ. He's done that by bringing us into His family, taking us or buying us out of our slavery to sin. And then He's making us more and more Christ-like through the power of His Spirit. And then finally one day we will be like Christ at glorification, that final sanctification, the final setting apart of ourselves as gods, as owned by God and as like Christ. God says and uh, tells us through the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, Verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. Here's really implied in that verse are all three aspects or all three ways in which sanctification is talked about. He who began a good work in you will continue it, progressive sanctification, all the way until the day of Jesus Christ when you're made like him. So what does this mean for the way that we live? Three things. Number one, we practice the spiritual disciplines because we already have been sanctified in Christ. This is why we practice the spiritual disciplines, because this has already happened. We've already been sanctified. Our spiritual disciplines flow from what God has already done in us. He's set us apart for His purpose. By virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, we are made into spiritual people so that we can be spiritual. That's what we're made to do. The spiritual disciplines do not earn us a new life, but they're fruit of our new life in Christ, aren't they? And that's why in Paul's letters, his instructions or his commands to the people and to us always follow what has happened. You're not going to find a whole lot of uh, commands at the beginning of Paul's letters. They start out with indicatives or just general statements about what God has done. And then he moves from that based on that. Therefore, this is how you ought to live. Walk you know, as, as Christ walked and, and uh, offer your bodies as living sacrifices and so on. Imperatives always flow from indicatives and that's the same thing for our Christian life. We have been sanctified. That's an indicative. And so we must be sanctified. We must sanctify ourselves through the power of the Spirit. The fact that God has saved us, that He has sanctified us, means that the Holy Spirit now lives within us and produces within us fruit. And so the reason that we pursue spiritual disciplines is because God has sanctified us. He's already done a work in us. Secondly, the reason that we practice spiritual disciplines is that we need to grow in godliness. 
We need to grow in godliness. God has made us to be godly. He's set us apart to be godly. And guess what? We're not there yet, are we? We're not over here. We're not godly. So, that doesn't just magically happen. It happens through the process of sanctification. Progressive sanctification. Until the time in which we are glorified, we need to progress in our sanctification. And that's why we we experience so much tension and struggle in our pursuit of holiness. And that's why we need constant exhortations from one another to pursue the, the spiritual disciplines in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The work of the cross is complete. Believers are forgiven, transformed, ransomed, and saved. But at the same time, there are imperatives that the Bible urges us to live in such a way that honors God and is consistent with our salvation in Christ. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. See, we have been freed from sin's dominion, its reign, its mastery over us, but we must still consciously choose to present ourselves in obedience to God, to present uh, ourselves as, as ones who follow Him, to prevent sin from exercising its rule over us. The spiritual disciplines are means to godliness. And here is the key verse that Whitney points out in his very first chapter, which basically illustrates a lot of what we've been talking about this morning. The key, I guess, two verses, verses 7 and 8. Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. We are not where we should be. We are not as godly as we ought to be. And so here's how it comes. No one has ever fallen in, fallen back into a place of spiritual maturity, have they? Just like no one's ever kind of slipped back into the elite forces of the military. It happens through hard work and dedication, doesn't it? And the same thing is true in the Christian life. Don't expect that you're going to magically fall into a place of spiritual maturity and godliness. It doesn't happen that way. It happens through effort. It happens through work, just like in every aspect of life. You want to become proficient at what you're doing? You have to practice it. You have to, you have to work at it. And the same thing is true with the Christian life. Practicing spiritual disciplines is a part of our effort to grow in godliness. So if you're not where you need to be, and I can assure you that you're not, then you need to practice the spiritual disciplines. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So we practice them because we already have been sanctified. We practice them because we still need to be sanctified. We're growing. And then thirdly, we practice the spiritual disciplines because we will be sanctified. Our hope of the glory that, that comes in Christ is certain. When Christ returns, He's going to make us like He is. He's going to give us glorious resurrection bodies. And this hope of glory in Christ ought to motivate us. We ought to be looking forward to that day with anticipation to the time when God will change us 
that we no longer desire sin at all. Hopefully, you've noticed that you desire sin less than when you came to Christ. Hopefully, you notice that sin becomes more of a bother to you than a joy like it once was. But you're not fully there. I'm not fully there. And so you should be, as I should be, looking forward to the day when sin no longer has a hold on us, when it no longer has, uh, uh, is desirable to us. 1 John 3, 3, we're, we've already turned away from there. So 1 John 3, 2 was, we will be like Him because we see Him as He is. The very next verse says this, and everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. When we think about that final sanctification, it actually purifies us. It causes us to be motivated to a place of godliness, of pursuing greater godliness. Our hope is certain, and so we need to persevere in our pursuit of holiness, knowing that our labor is not in vain. God has sanctified us. We still need to be sanctified, and He will sanctify us. So, a biblical understanding of spirituality and sanctification is vital for our practice, our right practice of the spiritual disciplines. Biblical spirituality and sanctification both have their foundation in Christ and in the gospel. And so, therefore, we need to guard against any legalistic view of the spiritual disciplines. That is, if I'm doing them and you're not, or if I'm doing them better than you are and you're not, then I'm more favorable to God. Remember, we can't earn God's favor for our salvation. When we start thinking of them in those terms as a means by which God accepts us into His presence, it becomes really something done out of pride and distasteful duty. So instead, the spiritual disciplines, and this is from uh, Brian Chapel, pastor, uh, his book, Christ-Centered Preaching. He says, the spiritual disciplines enable us who have been made righteous by Christ to breathe more deeply the resources that God freely and lovingly provides for the wisdom, joy, and strength of Christian living. The spiritual disciplines are a means of grace as well as a response to what God has already done. So, do you need to pursue spiritual disciplines? Is this series going to be necessary for you? Uh, is, is, are there areas in your life in which you need to improve upon, whether it be your Bible intake or prayer or, or your evangelism? Uh, these are the means of grace that God brings about holiness within His people. And as we pursue them, personally and corporately, we're going to see the Spirit's fruit start to come and, uh, and start to affect the way that we live, affect our community as believers. Any thoughts or questions or concerns? Greg? Godliness, uh, I would just say to be like God, uh, the, pers- the pursuit of holiness. Um, obviously, God has some attributes in which we can't mimic. But as far as God can be mimicked, those are the types of things we can. They, I think the uh, theologians call them communable attributes versus the incommunicable attributes. The communable ones are the ones that um, that we can mimic, like love and holiness. 
and justice and righteousness. So to the effect that we can do that, we ought to do that. But there are others that we can't mimic, like His infinity or His uh, omnipresence. We can't be ever... So we don't you know, go after... We're, we're not like God in that way, but we pursue likeness to God to the extent that, that we can. Uh, that's what we're going to be working through the, very, the next 12 weeks. So if you look at... Um, well, the schedule that we have only goes for a couple of weeks. So it only really gives us the first one, which is Bible, Bible intake. Um, so that's going to be reading the Scriptures, being under the sound of preaching, um, fellowship, that sort of thing. Uh, prayer. It's going to be evangelism. Um, let's see. Yeah, I What's that? And some other important stuff. Can't other important stuff can't be forgotten. Um, so yeah, that's what we're going to be working through the next 13 weeks. I guess I have his book right here. I could just look at the index. Um, worship, evangelism, serving, stewardship, fasting, and uh, he has a few others that I'm not going to cover. But you're welcome to read the book, like journaling, and. Um, things like that. So, Paul. probably wise just to be careful how it's used but but at the same time it might do us well just to explain that to like why we use a word like spiritual it comes from our understanding of the scriptures which God has revealed to us that it is about the Holy Spirit living within us which he does to believers so Trish Yeah, it could be anything. You're right, yeah. It's as elastic. Yeah, it's got as many meetings as the number of people you ask, you know, and maybe more. But, um, yeah, you got, you got to find out what they're talking about. Cause someone says they're spiritual doesn't necessarily mean they're a Christian. Someone says they're a Christian doesn't necessarily mean they're spiritual. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we've got to find out what people mean by their words. Obviously, um, just use some wisdom there. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for... Um, showing us from your word who you are and what you desire of us. May you help us to grow in our responsibilities and our love for you. And may this be a great delight for us as we seek to to honor you and to please you as children, not as a way to get into your kingdom or a way to earn your favor. Thankful that all the favor that we need to be on your side, it comes through Jesus Christ. Honor Honor yourself through us as we pursue our Uh, walk with you and pursue godliness and sanctification. May you help us so that we come to a place where you're glorified in our final sanctification. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.